Hello, welcome to KSB Advocacy Update. I'm Brian Jordan, Deputy Director of KSB. Today we're going to be hearing from the advocacy team at the Association of School Boards, uh, Mr. Mark Tallman, Leah Flyder, and Scott Rothschild. They're each going to take a different topic uh, and give you a brief update from the state, federal, and, and state board uh, levels or issues, or issues at the, each of those levels. Sorry. Uh, with the Zoom meetings, I'm sure you probably all have uh, participated in a Zoom meeting at this point in, in time, but just a quick reminders at the bottom of your screen, if you're on a laptop, uh, is the microphone button uh, and then also the video button. Uh, we're not, you're not required to turn your video on, but if you choose to do that, you can. Uh, we will offer some opportunities throughout the session today for you to ask questions uh, by turning your mic on and posing questions to the team. Or if you're uncomfortable doing that, you, you can use the chat feature uh, to pose those questions. To use that chat feature, there along that bottom row is also uh, the chat button. Just click on that and a window will pop up. You can put your questions in there. Team members will also be dropping links into that chat as we go throughout the session today. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Mr. Tallman. I'll pull up his, uh, his PowerPoint here and I'll let him get started. Actually, you don't need the PowerPoint yet. We're, we're actually going to have uh, uh, myself, Leah, and Scott kind of go through just talking about some of the things that have been happening this week. Then we're going to kind of come back and spend a little time talking about where we are with the budget and some situations like that. So you can hold off on that and just watch us talk for a little while if you want to do that. And certainly do want to indicate we will pause. Everyone's supposed to remind us uh, to give you the chance to ask questions as well as put it in the chat. And even though Leah and Scott currently have their mute buttons on, they can take that off and jump in anytime they want. Actually, any of the rest of the KSB staff can do that too. And Brian, thank, thank you for helping guide us through here. So um, I want to start by just talking a little bit about where we are with the uh, end of the legislative session in sight. I'm sure you all know that this was in my 30 plus years of doing work uh, with the legislature, an unprecedented session that we ended the regular session in mid-March. Uh, the legislature will come back for a one-day veto session on Thursday. That is also highly unusual. That means any work that they're going to finish up has to be done in just one day. You probably know there are some legislative committees that have been tasked to meet starting last week. Some are continuing today. In fact, Leah and I at least have been listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I just want to kind of mention uh, the topics that we expect may come up. Uh, again, uh, if you want to put into the chat any questions or, or then we'll let you unmute, unmute, unmute yourself if you have any uh, and there are certainly things that we may not be aware of that will somehow get before the legislature. That's unusual now because with only one day, the rules of how things can be considered, particularly in the House, are fairly restricted. And so we don't really expect a freewheeling, anything goes opportunity. But again, we're in kind of uncharted territory. So I'll, I'll go down a couple of issues that we expect. And again, welcome. Uh, Welcome Lee and Scott if there's anything they want to add in this part of the presentation. Today, the Senate Judiciary Committee is looking at the issue of uh, liability related to the COVID pandemic. They're mostly talking about what this could mean for health care providers or businesses. It is possible that education institutions could be added. 
Um, but after listening to discussions last week in the House Committee and so far this morning in the Senate, I think it's fair to say there is a lot of skepticism about whether they should rush to do anything. What this comes down to is some, some uh, healthcare providers, employees, and KSB submitted written testimony just raising the same question. People are concerned that they may follow all the protocols and could still end up being, uh, being sued by an employee, or I guess in our case, a student or a parent uh, that feels that they were exposed uh, to COVID. Um, the other side of that is the concern that, well, if people are behaving inappropriately and someone uh, gets the virus, should there be recourse? And I think what we're finding is it is not a simple answer. I think the question is whether uh, either committee decides to bring forward some legislation. The Kansas Chamber of Commerce has drafted some legislation. The Kansas Hospital and Medical Associations have some draft legislation. What'll probably happen is the committee will decide whether to put it into an existing bill as an amendment and try to get that across the floor of either house. Um, but the house may not even go on general order. So it'll probably happen in the Senate if that's the case. We'll be watching that uh, today. Um, the second issue that the Judiciary Committees are looking at, um, again, may have nothing to do with education. We don't know, but it's the, the whole issue of the governor's authority through her de declaring an a disaster, and then what authority does any governor have to issue these executive orders? Sure, you're aware that there are kind of a, a growing resistance by some people, some citizens and some legislators that the executive orders have gone too far or too much or too long. So the question is, may the legislature take action to either extend the current authority, which the governor wants, or try to limit what a governor can do and put that in a bill that the governor would have to sign. Again, you probably all know that it was in mid-March, the governor issued a disaster declaration, and many of the things that have happened, including the closing schools order, all flowed from that action. That action, that authority expired, and the governor issued a new declaration at the end of April. The, the, the State Finance Council, which is the governor and legislative leaders, did not do what she wanted and extend that for a full 30 days from when it expires. They only extended it until um, Monday, May 25th. So there are a number of questions about, uh, well, many things that are going to continue to be explored today and tomorrow. So it is possible, I guess, that uh, all of the governor's current authority to issue executive orders could call into question. It's possible the legislature could vote to extend the authority longer. So it's unlikely this is gonna be resolved in the next two weeks, but the question of what could the authority to regulate action of businesses and, and potentially even schools could be called into question. So let me pause there and see whether anyone has any questions or comments, uh, either by you uh, be getting yourself unmuted or putting in the chat room, if you have any questions before we talk about a couple of other legislative issues. 
Now, and while they're thinking, Lee or Scott, if you have anything you want to add, uh, feel free. Mark, this is Dorsey uh, from South Haven. Uh, yes. So if they choose not to extend her authority, then the current phase out plan is there's no, it, it doesn't happen. And so suddenly it's a free for all. Is that correct? As far as the governor's authority? It's the, so all I can tell you is we don't know. Because <laughs> one thing that, remember, we're now on a second declaration. So I suppose one option would be that on May 25th, the governor just issues a new proclamation. And that can extend for, I believe it's 30 days. But I think what is going to raise a, an issue in someone's mind is to say, the governor issues these authority under law, which is really a designation of authority from the legislature. And so at some point, I imagine someone could say, hey, a governor can't just keep issuing proclamation after proclamation after proclamation. At some point it ends. Well, who would resolve that? Well, ultimately, the Supreme Court would have to rule on that. So what would the Supreme Court say? And that's why, again, this is such a, a, a gray area is I would guess, but have no idea that, that if, if this isn't extended, the governor would try to extend it again because she, she clearly seems to be saying, I believe there is a health emergency. I believe I have to take action. I'm doing what I wanna do. And the question is whether at some point uh, someone would challenge that authority um, and, and, and then we don't know because it would be up to the courts to either allow it to continue temporarily or stay it temporarily. And the other issue this plays into face is, does this jeopardize any of our federal aid, which may be contingent on a disaster declaration in place? So great questions. And if you are interested in constitutional law, this is a fascinating time. If you're not, you're probably just really confused. Mr. Tallman, there's another question in the chat. Uh, Lou posted, which entity has the authority to open the K-12 schools? So probably there's a couple scenarios there. If the governor's, uh, you know, loses the authority, uh, who has the power to open up the schools in the current that, setting? Who has the power? Yeah, to I don't know whether we have any of our top flight KSB attorneys on to, to respond to that. Remember, before the governor acted, the commissioner had strongly encouraged schools close, but I don't, I don't know of authority of the commissioner state board to order schools to be closed. That could rest with a local board, but then that also gets into the question of if you wish to open schools, does that conflict with the action that's been taken to waive your, your uh, school year waivers are based on the fact that there was a governor's declaration? Sure. Sure. So I, I, I think that's another fascinating question that I don't think we have the answer to yet. Okay. Another question popped up in the chat from Mitch. If they decide to challenge her authority, does her authority remain until the court would decide otherwise? I think the court would have to decide that. <laughs> I, I think, it, it, as is usually the case, uh, it, it is the burden of the person bringing the, the claim to argue 
that something in uh, inappropriate has happened and ask for relief from the courts. But I don't, again, I would welcome probably some good attorneys. I see Norm Wilkes on, on whether, whether anyone else wants to weigh in, but I think those, those are the reasons why I think we all really hope maybe something will be worked out. But if not, it really could create a, a very gray area. Um, if you're not doing anything at 3.30 this afternoon, we are told that um, the, the, legislator, the legislature's chief counsel, the attorney general, and the governor's office have all been invited to talk about these issues with the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, and one of the other questions that we think is going to be asked is, so what's the enforcement of this? In other words, in other words, one question is, the governor can issue an executive order, but can that be enforced by law enforcement? And we're told the attorney general may be, may be talking about that issue. And of course, that's just the attorney general's opinion at this stage. Okay. All right. Mark. Yes, Lee. Mark. And everybody, I think we also need to make a note that if you happen to have a, an uptick or a spike in the virus in your county, your county health officer can order your schools to shut down. Really, the health department right. has the immediate authority there. Right. The good Just point, another Lee. wrinkle. And, and the governor's orders have always said that uh, hers are the floor, not the ceiling of restrictions. And so if let's just say that everything did expire on May 21st or May 25th, well, then you would have to see what, if any, restrictions your city or county pursuant to their authority may have put into place. Okay, a couple of other issues that we are watching as we move forward, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let Leah talk about the federal level. One is the tax committees are both have both met and uh, come up with some ideas. Here's the things that may, may affect schools. One is, uh, and so this is more kind of state budget issue, the governor uh, 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 extended till June or July 15th, the income tax payment. Um, that is an executive order that could expire. So one proposal would be to make that a statutory change. The Senate has also proposed that the property tax deadline of May 20th would be extended to August 20th. That could have some impact on revenue coming into the county and its distribution to schools. The House is also recommending a bill that would provide more ability to issue no fund warrants uh, to local entities. If, if your uh, COVID related expenditure spike and you don't have revenues, you could use no fund warrants and have uh, five years uh, to pay those back. And there's some other things related uh, to that bill uh, to keep an eye on. And then we, of course, continue to watch proposals to amend the tax lid by truth and taxation. So if you have, if you have friends in local government, they may be really worried or, or concerned, or maybe they're supporting Senate Bill 295, which is the, quote, truth and taxation bill, does not affect schools to this point. Should that reach the floor, we could be brought in. But at this time, people have kind of accepted the idea that schools are limited in other ways. And so we've not been brought into that debate. But our friends in city counties keep pointing out when fighting, well, hey, this doesn't even involve schools. They're not saying it should, but they're kind of saying, well, why are you applying it to us? So we could be brought, uh, be brought into that issue. The, uh, 
The last thing we're kind of trying to pay attention to is anything that might happen on the budget. The House Appropriations Committee met uh, for two days last week. They did not do anything to reopen the budget for the state that has been approved, which means right now, your, uh, the appropriated money and the base budget per pupil uh, that was expected is all funded, but we know it's probably not really funded because if state revenues drop, it will be extremely difficult uh, to do that. The committee made no action to make adjustments, which means we really fall back to issues of federal aid or the governor taking action. They are, however, very concerned about the money that the state has already received for COVID relief. Over $2 billion has been awarded to Kansas. 1.2 billion of that. I know some of you may have heard Dale Dennis and others say, well, the governor has $1.2 billion that, that she could use. Uh, and of course, schools received about $100 million in, in additional funding. That's pretty safe. The problem is that none of that money is really designed to just replace revenue. You have to tie it to COVID-related expenses. And so what people are most worried about, that we're going to not be able to fund our budgets, that money doesn't seem, it's not designed for that at this point. Uh, but it is designed that if you can show that you had a spike in expenses for personal protective gear or, or your hospital is running out of money, if you can tie it to that, you may be able to spend the money. The legislature's fear is that if we end up spending that money inappropriately, we may have to pay it back. And so there's, there's a lot of angst over oversight, but at this point, nothing official has changed. So uh, any, any but when we're done with Scott and Leah, we're gonna come back and talk a little bit about our budget situation. That's all I have for now, unless there's any other issues about the Kansas legislature you wanna bring up. Not hearing anything and no chat. If there isn't anything, we'll have time at the end. I will turn it over to Leah, bring us up to date on some federal developments. Thanks, Mark. Well, as you all may have heard on Friday, the House of Representatives passed a $3 trillion emergency stimulus bill that they're calling the, the HEROES Act. It's designed to, to pump more money into the economy in the wake of the COVID pandemic. It's uh, extremely unlikely that this bill will pass the U.S. Senate or be signed by the president. However, it's really the bill, the House bill is really seen as kind of a, a way for the House to stake out its positions on whatever this, we do know that there will be some sort of fourth stimulus bill because uh, it's it's been uh, promoted by the Federal Reserve Chairman that this would be a good idea. Otherwise, uh, you know, we're going to be entering what, what he thinks this could be a years-long recession. So we anticipate there will be some sort of stimulus that does end up being enacted. We don't know what the numbers are going to be yet, but we are monitoring that HEROES Act funding levels because of the, uh, the uh, education-related items that are in there. So for that reason, I'm just going to go briefly through that HEROES funding. It, uh, it would send a trillion dollars to state, local, territorial, and tribal governments. It has $90 billion for state fiscal stabilization funds. So that uh, could be sent to statewide and local funding for elementary and secondary schools and for public 
post-secondary institutions. And about 58 billion of that 90 billion would be dedicated to K-12 education. And uh, generally speaking, Kansas has about 1% of the US population and we usually just as kind of a thumbnail, we uh, project that you know, should something like this pass, Kansas would receive 1% of that $58 billion for K-12. Does that make sense for everybody? Okay, and then um, the HEROES Act also contains 1.5 billion in funding for the E-rate program. If you don't know what E-rate is, that is uh, a program that provides funding to schools and libraries to help them uh, provide internet access to students and teachers. It's generally, to this point, of course, happened in the school building, in the library, but now with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, putting a lot of learning online, there is uh, some real concern. I think most of you uh, see it in your districts where you have a number of kids who have no problem getting on the internet and completing uh, what they need to do, and then others who have little or no dependable access, and that's called the homework gap. So the HEROES bill contains 1.5 billion for, for the homework gap, but that is um, about two and a half, three million $3 billion short of what the National School Boards Association and other education advocacy groups have been requesting. We've been working towards more of a, a $4 billion funding level to fix the homework gap. But that $1.5 billion was at least included in the HEROES Act, and so that's at least a step in the right direction that's gonna take some more work. And there, there's also $3 billion in that bill for school meal providers under um, child and adult care food programs. So- um, Leah, I'm gonna jump in. I added yes. a link over in the chat for a YouTube video that, that goes over the homework gap. And also there's a document link over there on, on several right. topics. So Thanks, anyway, I just Brian. wanted to point that out to the group. Thank you, Dr. Jordan, I appreciate that. So moving forward, as we move towards what we hope will be this fourth uh, stimulus funding bill, the National School Boards, KASB, uh, the teachers unions, other advocacy groups are asking Congress for $200 billion really in the bill to help school districts and a minimum of $4 billion for the homework gap. So yes, that's a lot of money. You know, if, if the HEROES Act were to pass at $3 trillion, it would be the biggest, um, biggest spending bill in US history, but we're also in an incredibly compressed timeline as, as compared to the stimulus funding that was uh, provided under the ARRA you know, during the 2008-2010 recession era. So that's, uh, it's felt by advocates that this, this extraordinary time really does justify this extraordinary funding level. Uh, the other thing that we are discussing on the federal level is um, some temporary and tailored flexibility for um, IDEA deadlines and some, uh, some requirements under that federal law. Just to be clear, no one uh, that I know of is asking to just be excused from, from our legal and moral obligation to educate special ed kids. It's more uh, some temporary flexibility in responding to some, some of the guidelines and some of the deadlines that are, that are in place in the bill. So that continues to be a discussion point around uh, the stimulus bill to kind of add that flexibility in. And then of course, to 
uh, possibly add some additional funding for IDEA. And as you all know, IDEA has not been fully funded since it was um, enacted in the 70s. And the, the request at this time is, I see Norm smiling a little bit there. Uh, the request at this time is a minimum of $13 billion uh, nationwide for the next school year. And uh, in a perfect world, you know, full funding of IDEA. Uh, I think the, the 13 billion would probably be uh, much more likely than the full funding, and even that is probably going to be a heavy lift, but uh, it's something that, that folks feel is important to, to try to accomplish because, as you know, you're most likely going to have additional special ed costs in the fall when you open back up, and if those aren't reimbursed either by the state, federal, or local government, then obviously it comes out of your state general fund. So it's, a, it's an issue that we continue to advocate on. Does anybody have any questions about the homework gap or the funding, the stimulus bill or IDEA? Okay, and then I just have a brief item I wanna to touch on about school meals. Uh, we found out on Friday that the USDA is extending until the end of August a couple of, uh, a handful of nutrition waivers that they had put in place in March when it became obvious that we were gonna to have to start serving meals uh, quite differently than we do now. And so the USDA did extend the, uh, the waiver to allow uh, schools to serve in a non-congregate setting. In other words, you don't have, you're not required to serve kids only in the school cafeteria. You can do it curbside pickup, grab and go, what we've been seeing you know, uh, quite a bit here uh, since March. They also extended a waiver that would allow, that allows folks to um, serve more than one meal at a time. I think many of you have been doing, kids could pick up, you know, their lunch and then they could also pick up tomorrow's breakfast so that you don't have to deliver every single day. You could do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, things like that. And they also extended the waiver that allows parents to pick up the meals for the kids, but the kids are not required to be in the car. As you might remember in the very beginning of this process, you had to have the eligible children in the car with you when you picked up the meals and that was eventually waived by the USDA. So we do know that there's um, there's one waiver that's kind of still out there that um, that uh, that's the waiver for the area eligibility. You know, you might have a, um, a school that does not generally uh, uh, qualify for everybody to get lunch, but uh, at um, at a point here since March, the USDA did say, you can just pretty much serve everybody who shows up and don't ask for, you don't have to ask for paycheck receipts or, or anything like that because you know we do see now people who are suddenly unemployed or underemployed, they didn't know they were gonna have to depend on school meals and now they do and we, we anticipate that uh, they will throughout the summer. And so we know that's a request that is pending at the USDA. And I think that is all I have for federal, if anybody has any questions or wants to move on. Leah, is there a date to when those waivers were extended? Uh, through the end of August, Norm. Thank you. You're welcome. If no questions for Leah, Scott, do you wanna tell us a little bit about state board meeting this week? Sure. Well, uh, State Board of uh, Education uh, met last week and they had a fairly uh, uh, busy uh, agenda. Uh, and, and I'll just, I guess I'll just go to the headline. Uh, Commissioner Watson uh, 
uh, basically told them that the, that the department was going to do everything it could to uh, start school on time in August. Maybe. Uh, he said, uh, you know, they're going to have to uh, plan for any eventuality, which, uh, you know, only makes sense because we're three months away from uh, the, uh, when school would start and three months before now, who would have thought we would have been in this situation. So he told the state board that he's cautiously optimistic that we can start in August uh, but we're going to plan for different uh, kinds of starts. Uh, and uh, he told them that by July 10th, I believe, the department would be giving a guidance to schools about how to start. Uh, so um, I think that was, there's been a lot of talk lately about whether we're going to start in the fall or not. So I think he was trying to at least get out there the information that the department was going to work on everything it could to uh, to uh, start on time. Um, then uh, they gave the the department gave a uh, report. They took a survey on the continuous learning plan. They surveyed school districts on different aspects of the plan, uh, like what changes they've made since implementation and. How are you managing the engagement of students? And uh, they even went into meals. How many meals are you serving? So they, they sent it to all the school, the public and private school districts. I think they got 343 re, uh, survey responses. And the, the, uh, the, uh, the survey results are on our website if, if, if you want to look at them more in depth. But I think basically they have uh, the survey respondents basically reported what you probably all already know. Uh, there are issues, uh, many districts had issues with um, uh, inactivity of students or basically, I guess you, Zoom truancy or something, maybe maybe that I, I can coin a new term. Uh, and uh, you know, there are uh, issues about lack of internet service, uh, which of course, you know, we're all trying to to work on, as Leah noted, and even on the federal level. Um, you know, a lot of school districts said, you know, the families didn't have the technology, and there were there were problems there. So I think the survey just basically showed, and I think it's what Randy said earlier. You know, there's no substitute for having the kids in the building, but you know, uh, if you can't do that we got to do this. And so once we're doing continuous learning, here are the problems we're facing. That survey link has just been added to the chat also, if you want to Thank jump you. over and take a look at that. I would have attempted that, but I don't think my technology skills are there yet. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and districts also said they really applauded the, um, uh, the assistance they were getting from the state, but they said they need continued support in engaging families and, and getting this virtual learning going. Uh, another thing the state board did, uh, which I was probably pretty uh, important, is they accepted a, um, a early childhood plan uh, that has been going on for the past year or so. The, the uh, state uh, received a federal grant last year uh, uh, Kansas Children's Cabinet, uh, KSDE, KDHE, and DCF, they all got together. They surveyed the state about the early childhood needs of the state. 
education, healthcare, uh, you know, child child care workers and employment opportunities. They 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 did a, a they canvassed the state. They had many many meetings. Thousands of people participated, and so they've come up with this uh, plan all in for Kansas kids. They got another nine million dollar um, uh, federal grant. I, I believe this comes out of ESSA, and. Um, there's a potential for three years, $27 million, to basically set up a statewide early childhood structure. And they are always important. Uh, they always point out and emphasize that this is a lot of this is going to have to, is going to, is going to filter down to the locals to kind of map their own strategies. So the state board accepted that plan, $9 million. And, um, uh, that will go toward basically improving our early childhood systems in, in the state. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the highlights of the state board's uh, activity uh, last week. Are, are there any questions? Or? Okay. I don't know if any of your districts, are, are you hearing a lot of uh, are we going to open in, in fall or, you know, what's, what, what's the plan? Mm -hmm. Scott, this is Lou Martino from Parsons USD 503. We are going to have our school board meeting tonight at 530 and that is on the agenda. And uh, that's why I asked the question, who has the authority to open the schools? And one of my thoughts was, I looked at all the surveys that we sent out to our patrons and some of them were very good and positive about the learning packets and the, you know, the uh, internet types of activities. But on the other hand, a lot of parents were overwhelmed, frustrated. If you have two or three or four kids in the house, one kid gets to use the computer, connectivity issues. Um, and like you said, and Randy said, there's nothing like that can beat a classroom teacher. So that connectivity is missing. So some schools are actually making some home visits using social distancing, of course. And I think that may be a good idea. Uh, one of my thoughts was maybe we'll have to go back to the old fashioned open up after Labor Day type of thing, if that's even possible. But when Leah said the uh, local health department can close you down if you spike up, that kind of caught my attention. So it's like everyone else has played by ear, come up with plan A, B, C, D, and et cetera but I appreciate all the help that you guys are, the brainstorming, I, I like this creativity, it's, it's good stuff because we're all gonna become innovative schools. Yeah, there's several districts out there that uh, are putting together contingency plans. Um, I, saw, I saw a larger district in the state last week sent out a, uh, here, here's where we're at right now, uh, and basically framed what the state board had said, we're, we're optimistic, we're gonna be able to open school up. Here's some possible scenarios that, that, are, are pos that could be a reality that we're dealing with in the fall. So I know a lot of your superintendents are out there having those conversations with their leadership team. It's a really internal conversation right now to try to guard against fear and panic that, oh my gosh, school's gonna look different in the fall. Uh, another factor with this is a lot of schools are just trying to get things wrapped up and then that's going to be the next next step is starting to put together some of those contingencies. 
The nice part about it is we have a lot of parents that really encourage us to open in August. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if there aren't any questions right here, I wanted to kind of wrap up by just kind of quickly sharing some information. Some of you may have seen this, uh, so I'm not going to go into a detail, but it really comes back to that question I think that we're worrying about or, or concerned about uh, the state budget situation. Uh, I, no one is wanting to panic, and I think we are hopeful that the efforts to secure some federal support will be useful, uh, will be successful. But if not, I think we kind of need our, our eyes open. Governor Kelly continues to say that without more federal aid, we will have serious budget issues. And I just kind of want to remind everyone of why. And if, if some of this is useful to you, you, you can use this information. So Dr. Jordan, if you could advance the slide and we'll see whether this works. Uh, this just comes down to uh, a little chart we put together to show what happened with the new consensus estimates and essentially going from based on the November estimates and the budget that the legislature passed, we anticipated uh, having almost a, well, we had a billion dollars as an ending balance last year. We would again have about a billion dollars in reserve uh, in, on June 30th, but because of the change that is supposed to drop to about 205 million under current scenario and drop to about a $653 million deficit next year. So remember, that is the approved budget with no cuts compared to the new consensus estimates that were released in April. So that's what the state is confronting. Next slide. This is just a little history, and I don't know if you can see that because all of your pictures are covering part of this for me, but just kind of the trends of the state general fund. We have been through something like this before. This goes back to 2002. We saw state revenue declines for several years as a result of the, of the Great uh, Recession. And then we saw declines in state revenue because of the tax cuts. And as the state general fund has been coming back, we expected to see continued growth, but we are again going to see a substantial cut in state revenue. And the next slide uh, just tells us why K-12 education uh, may well be a part of this conversation. This is just a little pie chart that shows you the distribution of state general fund. This was for last year. The light blue slice is K-12 education. 52% is state aid to K-12 education. About 11% goes to higher education. 26% goes to human services, which includes our matching for federal Medicaid dollars, uh, operating state hospitals, foster care, all, all of those services. Uh, public safety is 6%, which would be like your state prisons and correctional institutions and everything else, all those other places that we don't want to cut any of those, but there's got to be a lot of waste out there somewhere is in about that 5%. Um, we're looking at the possibility of having to cut uh, 8 to 10%, which I'll explain in just a minute. So next slide. And this is just a reminder because it's, it's worth noting. We sometimes hear about how, well, the problem is that half our money goes to K-12 education and that's too much. But a little bit of history, 50%, approximately 50% of the state general fund has gone to K-12 education since basically 1994-95 when the legislature made a choice to reduce reliance on local property taxes by having Kansas state government play a larger role. So it's nothing new. We're in this point. And this chart just kind of shows how Kansas compares to other states 
The kind of pinkish middle bar is the, um, is the for 2017, state aid per pupil in Kansas, which as you can see is higher than the national amount. But if you look at the blue, the blue portion, that's the national in, in Kansas, how much per pupil comes in from local revenues. So in Kansas is only about half. And th this is why state aid in Kansas is higher than the national average if you simply look at state appropriations, but total spending in Kansas is below the national average because we rely less on local revenues. That's good to the local property taxpayer. It's bad though when our state runs into financial problems because then we, we have greater exposure. And the next chart, uh, Brian, uh, shows you uh, again, here, here's that point, about two-thirds of all school district revenue in Kansas comes from the state, less than 10% from the federal government, and local revenues are the rest. So again, we rely more heavily on the state than many other states. That creates a particular issue for Kansas. And the next slide uh, just uh, looks at this a little bit differently. Uh, if you look at your general fund, local option budget and special ed, which is what school boards mostly spend time on allocating, because that's really your operating budget. The blue, dark blue is general state aid from directly from the state. The, the kind of uh, uh, blue gray, I guess, is special education state aid. The gray portion is LOB state aid. So all of those three funds general state aid, LOB, and special ed, the vast majority comes from the state. Only that yellow part is local. Conversely, if you look at facilities acquisition and construction, basically what you spend to build buildings, most of that comes from the local government, not as much from the state. Mr. Tallman, there's a question yeah. in the chat oh, sure. about where folks can access this uh, PowerPoint. Has that been posted on our website? It, it is, and I think when we're done with this, you will put up the link in, in the uh, text that you used. We have links to, uh, this is present, we have this version as a blog, we have it as a video, we have it as a podcast, and in fact, I can send you directly just the slides if you yep. just ask me. I um, can copy and paste those links into the chat yeah. right now while you're talking about this slide. Please do. And this slide is just a reminder because we always get the question of, well, how much of our budget goes to instruction, et cetera. This is just a reminder that about 75% of school district funding goes directly to instruction or student programs or teacher support programs. Those are all the green uh, slices. The red slices are building operations, like your utilities, custodial, um, and then debt service on buildings. And the little blue slices, less than 5% are what goes to central services and general administration. So yes, even though only half, about 53% of our funding goes to instruction, uh, another significant portion are other things supporting students or the cost of operating the buildings where those classes actually meet. So again, this just background, because one of the things you're gonna hear from legislators and others, well, if we have to cut schools, surely there's places we can cut. Got to be a lot of got to be a lot of waste in there. Well, here's where the money goes. Next slide. And this is just a little. This is just kind of the math. That this is the grim math that takes the approved 2021 budget. We take out the class, uh, the human service caseloads, which basically is what the state has to put in to get our to get our federal funding. That gives you a new total. Then it shows you the projected deficit for next year. That means we'd have to cut 
non-case loads by almost 10%. K-12 state aid is about $4 billion. If you cut K-12 state aid by 9.8%, that's about 390, almost $400 million. So that's, that's again, we hope the worst case scenario, we hope this can be avoided. And this is if it was across the board, it wouldn't have to be, but it, it just kind of shows the ballpark of what, frankly, the governor is likely to be facing. The next slide. Uh, and another way of looking at this and reminding people where things might happen is 50% of total district spending goes to school district salaries, 15% goes to benefits, in other words, that, that portion, almost two-thirds of your budget, goes entirely to salaries and benefits for your employees. Another 12% is basically purchase services, which is where you are paying someone else's employees, contractors, you know, if you have bus service or food service or contract for anything, or construction. Uh, and of course, you're probably not going to be able to cut your debt service without, I guess, ruining your your credit rating forever. So that means only 12% of what school districts spend really are just things you could spend less on without affecting people. So uh, those are several things to keep in mind. I don't think, Brian, go to the next slide if you would. Okay, this is for something else. Just a couple notes. And so here's the thing uh, that you may want to remember. If the legislature has to make cuts or, or the governor and we don't get federal aid, where might that fall? Well, you could cut the base. That'll run into issues of adequacy, which we've just tried to get back in sync with the court on. If you cut state aid of things like local option budget, capital outlay, capital improvement, that creates equity issues that would be a problem. If you try to cut special education aid, you have a maintenance of effort issue with the federal government. Obviously, in some ways, the simplest thing to cut and what we've done in the past is, frankly, not make our CAPERS payment. And that doesn't have a direct impact, but it does hurt down the road our, uh, the, the, the funding of the CAPERS system. We've just been struggling over the past decade to finally get contributions back where they would be. Um, and so while that's probably the path of least resistance, it has a consequence down the road as well. Um, uh, I'm going to ask for questions in just a minute on that, but just a few other things I wanted to show you. We also have posted, and you can have links to something, uh, I don't know whether this is good or bad news, but it's a report we just did in a blog I put together uh, that just kind of a reminder of how education spending pays off in educational attainment. This is a scatter graph which shows the relationship by state between educational attainment, in this case, the percent of your population with a four-year college degree, and uh, per capita personal income in the state. Basically just making the point that the better educated your state population is, the more that population is likely to earn on average. And the next chart I think shows that, Brian Brew, that this does, does it on an individual basis. Now all these numbers are gonna be way out of whack for this is last year. We will dream about a 3% unemployment rate. Um, you know, there's concerns we will hit 25%, but so far, those layoffs are occurring in the same way. The less education you have, the higher your unemployment rate and the lower earnings you have. And there's little to believe that anything in this latest economic crisis is, is going to change that. Brian, one more slide, I think, on this area. Again, this is some just background I like to leave with you for your conversations with 
with legislators or patrons and who think that we haven't made progress in education is just a reminder, if education is important to income, here's an example of how uh, Kansas and the United States have improved educational attainment um, since, since 1990, going from about 80% to over 90% high school completion, going from about 20% four-year degree completion to 33% four-year degree completion. So the educational attainment has been growing. That's key. Kansas continues to lead the rest of the country in doing that. So these are some things Dr. Jordan has put in some links. It's background information if you want to use locally or just for your information or to share. That's what I have. And we'll just use the rest of our time if you have any questions or response to any of these. Uh, Dr. Gibson posted something in the chat. Although I don't suspect the cuts will hit the base, hypothetically, have you figured the impact on the base state A per pupil if we were cut statewide by $395 million? Uh, yes. Just a second. I have to look at a different screen. My estimate is that a $400 million cut equals a $583 reduction in the base. You can do that math yourself by taking whatever cut you want to figure and dividing it by 686 weighted FTE enrollment. So you can do that math. Now, one other thing to remember, that weighted FTE is based on this year's free lunch enrollment. Mm -hmm. And if we have the type of economic downturn that we estimate, I'm guessing that weighted enrollment, which was supposed to be essentially flat, will probably be much higher. That means we could see a reduction in the base even if there are no cuts in state aid, because we would be dividing that appropriated amount by a higher weighted enrollment. And there you go, pulls himself off the floor. That's why, and you know, we, we aren't trying to be alarmist on this. I, I think we, we continue to hope that there will be alternatives found, but you know, these really are the numbers. And, uh, and uh, Lee has talked to us about the HEROES Act, um, none of our members of Congress voted for it, including our Democrat, uh, for, for different reasons, although I believe she has expressed support for the revenue replacement idea. So uh, that, I think, is why it's just so critical uh, to try to reach out to our members of Congress on really what the choices are, um, because the state, cannot, the state cannot deficit spend. The federal government can and does. Mark, have you guys talked to our Congress members? What do you have there? What do you have a feeling that they're thinking now? I'm going to let Leah answer that because she's planning to talk to one tomorrow. Perfect. <laughs> we are anticipating that um, they are going to express some initial reluctance, particularly the Republicans, because you may have noticed that this is starting to kind of break down under on partisan lines in Congress. You know, Republicans generally not not trying to paint everybody with the same brush, but are starting to talk about concerns about deficit spending and and let's let the um, the previous bills kind of play out and see how they go. So we're, what we're going to counter that with is saying, yes, you know, we, we admit, we acknowledge these are just incredible numbers that we're talking about, you know, $3 trillion, things like that. But they're also just unprecedented times that we, you know, we keep hearing that phrase that this is kind of taking the, the Great Recession, the impact of the Great Recession, and has collapsed it to, you know, the last 
few months since March. So kind of desperate times require desperate measures. And I guess too, if you think about the stimulus funding of, you know, 08 to 10 and you multiply that by inflation, you know, you're going to get a bit, a much bigger number than you got before. So we, we acknowledge that there's going to be some reluctance, but when we're talking to folks and we, we would encourage you if you have uh, interactions with your members of Congress to talk about, you know, what those uh, alternatives would be. You know, if we have to lay off a bunch of teachers, if we have to, to do some of those things that some of these really um, just extraordinary budget cuts might entail if we don't receive some additional funding from the federal government, it's going to have long lasting years long effects, not only in the state economy, but the federal economy as well. I think, I think what we've, what the message we've tried to put out there is to say, if schools are cut, you, you are going to hurt students at a time when their needs are greater than ever. And you're going to hurt the economy because you're going to have to be reducing payroll. That's really all you can do. So it will compound our state unemployment problems. It'll compound our lack of income. It'll, it'll take money out of the state economy when we need to be putting money into the state economy. So uh, those are things that I think we just, we just have to try to get past some of the kind of partisan labels and just say this, this is absolutely serious issues. One other thing I might mention, Lee, you can comment on this too. There has been some talk about trying to sort of retroactively uh, loosen up what you could spend some of the money already provided on. And that has kind of been the big issue that right. we, don't, we don't know how much of the money that's been awarded will be spent directly on COVID-related expenses. And many state and local governments may say, we, we have a bigger problem we, we can spend our money on COVID sources, but if the rest of our budget is collapsing, it doesn't really do us any good. So that, that $1.2 billion in federal aid that basically went to the state for general purposes is, is just about equal to the amount of revenue we, we, it was lowered. Um, right. But at this point, the interpretation is it can't be used for revenue replacement. Right. As the budget director said last week, you know, he, he was kind of like, you know, you're going to have to show actual receipts for, you know, masks and cleaning supplies and things like that. That's his interpretation of what the federal government is saying at this time. But he also said that seems to be kind of a, a moving target. He said this thing is, is changing every day. And so, yeah, if you all are talking to your members of Congress and, and can work that in about, you know, maybe some flexibility about the CARES Act funding, that will probably also be helpful. Mark, we've, we've been operating for some time with a three-party legislature. Has uh, this episode strengthened or, or changed some of those dynamics a bit? You know, uh, it, it, that's, I think, still a little hard to say. Uh, in the end of the session, I think, was uh, there wasn't a lot of differences. The bill to extend the governor's authority uh, passed pretty overwhelmingly. But even the, that last few days, you were starting to hear grumblings about, well, why did we close schools to the end of the year? Uh, and, and certainly it has become uh, more divided. Uh, the governor and her supporters 
another element that are very unhappy with where we are with, you know, the lockdown and, and all of that. And then I'd say there's just a group of people that are kind of being quiet right now. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be the difference. Uh, uh, let's take the, the liability issue. Legislative leadership was talking, one of the reasons we have to have a special session is we have to pass these protections to protect, protect our businesses. But um, really across the spectrum, last couple of days, we've heard a fair bit of skepticism. So I, I just don't know whether there's gonna be, I, I think there's still a lot of people worried about what, what we should be doing and not wanting to move too fast. Whether that's good or good or bad, I, I don't know. Uh, the other thing we keep reminding is, of course, June 1st is the filing deadline. Uh, the entire legislature will be on the ballot. Uh, and so uh, that balance of power will know a lot more about after the election. And nor many of you know, the, the most important issue in determining who controls the legislature starts with who files. Because if you don't have people running, they can't win. <laughs> and so that we don't, in the midst of all of this, we can't lose sight of, of hopefully there are good candidates that are coming out uh, and, and people will be active uh, in the election, which will determine which legislature comes back, what kind of legislature comes back to deal with things next January. I, I, another point, I, back to, to Lou's comment of, of who's doing what and who has the authority. And I agree with your comment that, you know, the court's up in the air. They can do what they want to do to continue or curtail whatever's in, in, in place at the time. It's the other, the other issue that no one has, to my knowledge, been talking about and I don't know that there's any any real discussion at the state board level, but another player in that decision making uh, may well be the self-executing powers of the state board of education. Uh, good point. Yeah, to this point, the state board seems pretty united behind the commissioner, but they've really been able to operate off of, you know, executive orders and such. So. Good point. Well, Dr. Jordan, I don't know, uh, you've been helping us uh, monitor things. We tried to keep this within an hour, so looks like we probably better sign off, but you're free to reach any of us by email if you want us to, to share any of the uh, videos we've sent you or podcasts with the original PowerPoints. We do hope to make this a regular function when we're not in session. Uh, people seem more comfortable working with Zoom. We always appreciate your feedback on everything. So. I guess just thank you for joining us. We'll be looking to schedule these throughout the summer. Uh, Dr. Jordan or Lee or Scott, anything else we need to say before we finish up? I might, I might add to um, things to be looking for coming up from KSB. We're gonna continue as, as Mark said to offer this throughout the year, kind of on a standing date or a day every month. Uh, but we also are gonna have our summer round tables where we're gonna do them virtually, but we're also gonna try to do those on site within your regions out there. Uh, where we'll obviously know a little bit more about what's happened at the federal level. Uh, and we'll also be able to do a little reflection around what we learned from the continuous learning uh, that we just came through. What are you doing in preparation for starting school, given that there's a lot of uncertainty around that. So look for those things to be coming up. Uh, we thank you for taking some time with us this afternoon. I'm going to ask anyone in the group any final thoughts before we sign off. Thank you all.
You bet. Thank you all. Thank we'll we'll see you. you all down the road. Have a good afternoon. Adios.